This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360, a live report from Perry, Iowa, seen at the latest school mass shooting. What authorities are saying about how it unfolded, which included their discovery of a makeshift bomb at the scene. That and what a student says tonight about what she went through. Also tonight, a new batch of unsealed documents in the Jeffrey Epstein sex trafficking scandal. What's in them and who? And later, House Democrats say they've got the former president's number and it's in the millions. What's in their new report of how much foreign government money went into Trump properties and by extension his pockets during the Trump presidency. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin tonight in Iowa, but not for the reason you'd expect, not for presidential politics. Take a look. These are pictures tonight from Perry, Iowa, northwest of Des Moines, a vigil, one of two, after a day that began with what is already the country's second school shooting of 2024. The first in Virginia took no lives. This one did. It happened on the campus shared by Perry's middle and high schools. Police say the shooter was a student at Perry High. Before killing himself, he shot six people, one of whom died, a sixth grader, a child killed by an older child. Not for the first time and never, it seems, for the last. CNN's Veronica Miracles at the scene for us tonight. I know you just got on the scene. What are you learning? Anderson, just a devastating start to this new year for this community here in Iowa. You can feel the grief even as you come in and see all of the individuals at the vigil. Uh, tonight, this community mourning the loss of a sixth grader. Five other people were injured in this shooting. Four students and one faculty member, police say. One of those injured are critically injured. All of them, however, are expected to survive. Now, this school shooting happened before school began, and it was right around 7.30 when students from all ages Students from all grades were gathered for a breakfast club when shots first rang out. Uh, we spoke to some students at a vigil who were there at school, including one of them who was inside the cafeteria. At first, like the whole like cafeteria went silent, and then like more shots like continued, and everything just went into chaos. Hey folks, um, I'm Joel Curtin. I just saw like the principal start running and like all my friends and I just um, got out of there. When I was on my way to go to school, um, my friends had sent more texts that there were gunshots and everybody was running and crying out the school. Anderson, this community is small. The entire school district has only about 1,800 students, so everyone knows everyone, including a woman that CNN spoke to at the vigil who says she knows the victim. She heard about uh, a child in her neighborhood who had been missing. She went knocking on that family's door and learned that their child was the one who was killed. She said this individual uh, was just the sweetest child, one that you would want your kids to be friends with. Police say the gunman died from a self-inflicted gunshot. The 17-year-old was found with a pump-action shotgun and a handgun. Authorities also say the 17-year-old shooter was posting on social media at the time around the shooting. They also found in another part of the school an improvised explosive device. The authorities did render it safe. As far as the motive, the investigation continues. But the grieving here in this small community has just begun. Anderson. Veronica, appreciate it. Veronica Miracle. Earlier tonight, I spoke with one of the students who managed to get safely away from the gunfire. Her name is Rachel Karras. She's a senior at Perry High. Rachel, I understand you were in the band room when you heard shots. Can you tell me what happened? Um, basically, we were finishing up jazz band, and my band teacher was 
uh, walking us through one of our last songs. Um, and then he was talking to us about it. And then um, uh, right when he was about to finish, we heard four gunshots uh, down the hall from us. Uh, we didn't know which way, though. Um, Were they very so loud? We all just, yeah. Like, we, at first, like, I thought it was, like, a chip bag, but I was like, that's that's way too loud. And then the smell started to linger. Um, and I don't even know how to describe that. It just smelled like burning. Mm-hmm. It just, um, yeah. Um, and then when there was another shot that was let out, uh, like really soon after that, our band teacher looked at us and he just goes, run. And like none of us hesitated. We just all got up and ran. Um, at that point, you, and, did, you realized it was shooting. Uh, we didn't know what it was. We just wanted to get out hmm. because which, it was. Which super way did loud. you run? Um, so our auditorium is actually hooked up to the high school, um, which uh, you would have to have a hallway for that, and the hallway that we have for that leads to the outside, and that's the hallway that we took. When you ran. What what did you do then? I mean, did, did you stay in the school grounds? Did you just where did you go? Uh, anywhere away from school. We just kept going. Um, and thankfully for that, we have um, our armory and our rec center and elementary fairly close, um, at least walking distance from the school. Uh, so a bunch of kids went to one of those places. And I understand you called your mom and all the chaos. What did you say to her? Um, I basically said that there were gunshots, or I think there were gunshots, um, but I'm okay. I'm out of the school. And I was with, like, and I named off some of my other friends that I was with. Um, And then she just was like, what? Like, she was freaking out, probably more than I was. Um... And then she was like, you need to get home now. And I was like, well, my keys are in the school. I can't really go back there. And she's like, yeah, don't do that. And I was like, not really planning to. Um, but then my sister ended up uh, rushing over to me and finding me. Do you know any of the, the people who were injured? Uh, I know about one of the staff members, yeah. Looking back now, I mean, what's it, how do you feel? To have gone through this is, I mean, it's obviously terrifying. Um, It doesn't feel real. Like, this is like one of those things where you see on TV and you're like, that's never going to linger its way towards my community. But it it does happen. It's really real. Had you ever thought that this could happen in your school? No. Uh, I was... Like, we used to have, we had one series of bomb threats when I was in middle school, but that was taken care of, like, really early on, and nothing happened. Well, Rachel, I'm so glad you were okay and your friends, and I, I wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you. Perspective now, if that's even possible, from CNN senior law enforcement analyst and former deputy FBI director Andrew McCabe. 
So, Andrew, does anything stand out to you about the shooting and the response by law enforcement at this stage? So, Anderson, what we know from the press, two press conferences today, the, the, the response seems to be entirely in line with what you would expect and hope for from your local first responders. Uh, it took them about seven minutes or so to respond after the initial receipt of the 911 call. Um, and in a, in a rural town of, uh, you know, lightly populated, spread out over a big area, I think that's a pretty reasonable response time. Uh, the problem is, uh, whether it's seven minutes or one minute, you're always after the shooter. You are coming in after the carnage has already begun. So that, that the odds for law enforcement, as we've discussed many times, to, to uh, resolve these situations peacefully with a quick response is just not really, uh, that's not really possible. The, the shooter was uh, apparently armed with a, a, a pump-action shotgun, 17-year-old student, a small-caliber handgun as well. Uh, there also was an ex- improvised explosive device found a- at the scene. That, that's unusual. I mean, I, the, obviously that, that occurred in Columbine as well. Yeah, I think the guns are, are fairly typical. What you would expect that a student, a child would be, be able to get access to in the home. We don't know where the guns came from. It's Presumably, he didn't purchase himself. He's only 17 years old. He wouldn't be able to do that. These were probably firearms that he had access to in the home, but we'll find out as the investigation goes on. The use of the IED is interesting to me. It's not entirely unheard of. You know, we certainly have examples of other mass shooters. The San Bernardino shooters come to mind. They had numerous uh, IEDs that they left at the community center where they began their rampage. Um, But here, what it really connects to for me is the possibility of Columbine as an inspiration for this actor. We know that uh, the the shooting at Columbine in 1999 still to this day is a very, very powerful motivator uh, to particularly to young people who are inclined to act out violently. They study it online. They read books about it. They make trips to Columbine to see the school where it happened. So the use of the uh, IED to me feels a little bit like an echo of Columbine. There's been some reporting that the song that he used in the background on his TikTok posting just before the shooting is also a song that was used by Eric Harris, one of the Columbine uh, shooters on his personal website again in 1999. So there may be some distinct connections here. Uh, The investigation might uncover more connections in that regard. I mean, it seems, you know, on the face of it, uh, just in crazy that people would take inspiration from what happened to Columbine. It is. It's 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 crazy. It's uh, destructive. But, you know, I mean, this is what we have. We have young people who are clearly in trouble, who are um, struggling probably in many different ways and they seek and find community and inspiration in all the strange ways that young people do that, right? That's going to happen. Um, The difference here, what makes us different than every other place on earth is that those same troubled, disturbed young people can also get readily easy access to lethal firearms. That's what makes us different. That's why it's the combination of those two things that puts us in the situation where we're in, where it's four days into the year. We have two school shootings so far. So buckle in. It's going to be a long year. How important is determining a motive in terms of trying to prevent future tragedies like this? I mean, does it 
Does it matter so much for each investigation? I think it does because every time we can get a better insight into what was motivating one of these actors has the potential of rendering additional signals or things that not even so much law enforcement, but that communities, school administrators, uh, coaches, parents, friends can look for. And if they see these red flags, they see these indicators, you know, po quite possibly say something, bring this person to the attention of adults or of authorities. Like that, that's, um, that's a long shot, but it's really the best we have right now. So it's, definitely worth pursuing knowledge of what those motivations are so we can look for them in other people. Andrew McCabe, thanks very much. Next, more breaking news. What we're learning from the latest batch of unsealed documents connected to the late sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, his accomplice, uh, Ghislaine uh, Maxwell, their victims and big name associates and friends. And later, the former president and foreign money, a new report showing how many millions of dollars foreign government showered on his properties while he was in the White House. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. More breaking news, a second batch of documents was just unsealed related to late sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein, as you know, died by suicide in 2019 before he could face trial in federal court. Kara Scannell has been reading through the new documents, joins us now. What stands out, anything? So we got about over 300 pages of documents, and our fantastic team has been going through them. Again, it's more depositions. And one deposition that has stood out is the lead detective in Palm Beach, who had conducted one of the earliest investigations of Epstein in the mid-2000s. Through his testimony, he says that he interviewed 30 or 33 girls who said that they were recruited by Epstein and have given massages to him. And as we learn from Gillian Maxwell's criminal trial, massages was a code for something that began as a massage but then turned sexual. So it just kind of gives us more of the sense of just the, the numbers of people. I mean, it's insane. Truly astonishing. And he said that the majority of the girls he interviewed were minors. So yeah. that just shows you how big this was. And this comes on top of yesterday's um, batch of documents. And those, again, were more depositions, but they also, while they had no block, they gave us a sense of the elite circle that Epstein traveled in.
politicians, a prince, and other prominent men. Their identities all contained in new Jeffrey Epstein documents unsealed Wednesday. It's the first batch of sealed court filings related to the late sex trafficker released following a judge's order last month, with dozens more documents soon to be made public. Epstein's circle of associates is well known, but the records provide the public more context about the exclusive world he traveled in while facing accusations of misconduct. I would say that uh, there's not much new in this, but I do think that it's important that the public have access to the documents because it isn't just about Epstein. The pages name prominent figures, including Prince Andrew, former presidents Bill Clinton and Donald Trump and stem from a civil defamation lawsuit brought in 2015 against Epstein's former girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell. Included are depositions, including one taken in 2016 from Joanna Schoberg, who worked for Epstein. She said in the document that she and Epstein had a conversation and, quote, he said one time that Clinton likes them young, referring to girls. When asked if Clinton was a friend of Epstein's, she said she understood Epstein had, quote, dealings with Clinton. Clinton has not been accused of any crimes or wrongdoing related to Epstein and has denied any kind of criminal activity. A spokesperson for Clinton on Wednesday reiterated that Clinton knew nothing of Epstein's crimes. Schoberg also recalled a time she was with Epstein on one of his planes, and Pilot said he needed to land in Atlantic City. Jeffrey said, great, we'll call up Trump and we'll go to, I don't recall the name of the casino, but we'll go to the casino. She says in the deposition she never gave a massage to Trump. In 2002, Trump called Epstein a terrific guy, but he later said he threw Epstein out of his Mar-a-Lago club. Trump is not accused of any wrongdoing. When CNN asked for a statement, the Trump campaign responded by attacking the media. The documents also contain excerpts of a deposition taken from the woman behind the lawsuit, Virginia Roberts Jufree, who previously reached an out-of-court settlement in a separate sexual abuse lawsuit against Prince Andrew. Jufre alleged in her deposition that she was Epstein's sex slave, and Maxwell directed her to have sexual contact with people, including Prince Andrew and former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, who died last year. But Prince Andrew and Richardson have denied wrongdoing. A spokesperson for Richardson denied he had ever met Jufre. I think for, for the survivors and um, you know, the attorneys who've been working so hard to bring this to light, I do think it, it uh, gives them a sense of at least some satisfaction and some justice that that we're keeping the conversation going. Dufry's attorney says the disclosure furthers the important goal of shutting down sex trafficking wherever it exists and holding more to account. The unsealing of these documents gets us closer to that goal. Attorneys for Ghislaine Maxwell, who is serving a 20-year prison sentence, said in a statement on Wednesday she has consistently and vehemently maintained her innocence. What's next in terms of these documents? I mean, we were really, it seems like we're still at the beginning stages of these documents. In total, we've got um, just about 59 documents that we've seen. There are expected to be dozens and dozens more of them that will continue to roll out over the next several days. So we'll continue to look through them. But, you know, this was a long litigation before it ultimately settled. And so there were a lot of depositions taken, a lot of discovery, a lot of subpoenas. So we're just going to have to keep coming through this to see what there is. And are some people's names being held back or is everybody's name going to be... 
There's just a small subset of people whose names are being held back, and some of those are victims who were minors at the time, and their stories have never been public. Their names have never been public, yeah. unlike some of the others who have spoken out publicly, who spoke at the trial. Uh, they have kept them their identity secret, and the judge says she was going to keep that. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, those are the that's really the main set of people whose identities we won't know, but otherwise the judge said that everyone else is going to be unsealed because the un- public interest outweighs right. their privacy. Harris Cannell, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the former president of the Trump properties that kept making him money while he was in office and a new report tonight on which foreign governments spent millions of dollars at those properties. The former president has lately made a habit of accusing the current one of taking money from foreign governments, most notably China. He's provided no evidence. On the other hand, Democrats on the House Oversight Committee today brought some receipts. They released a report documenting, they say, millions of dollars that foreign governments spent at the former president's properties while he was in office. A presidency, which you'll remember, began with serious questions about just that subject. More from CNN's Jessica Schneider. These papers are just some of the many documents that I've signed, turning over complete and total control to my sons. At the start of Donald Trump's presidency, he promised to hand over control of his companies to his two sons, but he refused to divest his assets and he retained ownership. Now, a report released by House Democrats reveals how Trump and his business raked in at least $7.8 million from foreign governments during his time in the White House. He not only lined his own pockets, but he repeatedly sold out the American public interest in favor of the interests of these foreign governments. Congressman Jamie Raskin led the investigation, finding that the Chinese government and its state-controlled entities spent more than $5.5 million to stay at Trump properties, including Trump Tower in New York City and the Trump International Hotels in Washington, D.C. and Las Vegas. Other countries handing over hundreds of thousands to Trump's businesses, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, and India. By defying the Constitution, he basically fulfilled the founders' worst fears, which is that the president, in order to line his own pockets, would sell out the American interest in favor of particular foreign governments looking for policy favors from the president. And that's exactly what happened. The Emoluments Clause of the Constitution forbids a president from accepting any present emolument of any kind whatever from any king, prince, or foreign state. For years, Democrats have alleged that foreign governments were buying favor with the Trump administration. I believe this is not only wrong and immoral, uh, but illegal. Mr. President! The new report points to Trump declining to impose sanctions on the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China for allegedly helping North Korea evade U.S. sanctions after the state-owned bank leased property at Trump Tower and the Trump administration's $100 billion arms deal with Saudi Arabia in May 2017, around the same time the country spent about $600,000 at Trump-owned properties. Trump's team denies any wrongdoing. They point to the Trump Organization donating about $450,000 in estimated profits from foreign governments to the U.S. Treasury, and Trump himself refusing to accept a paycheck during his time as president. It's a lot of of money I would have given away, like I give away my salary. Eric Trump responding, there is no president in United States history who is tougher on China than Donald Trump, a president who introduced billions and billions of dollars worth of tariffs on their goods and services. Meanwhile, Republicans continue to make the so far unproven allegations that President Biden has benefited from his son's business dealings in China and Ukraine. 
But in response to the report about Trump's businesses, Republican House Oversight Chair James Comer, who is leading the investigation into the Bidens, saying it's beyond parody that Democrats continue their obsession with former President Trump. Former President Trump has legitimate businesses, but the Bidens do not. What, if anything, can congressional Democrats do about this? Well, Anderson, they're really releasing this report, I guess, for two reasons at this point. First, they want people to be aware of Trump's business entanglements with foreign governments going into 2024. Secondly, Congressman Raskin told me that he's going to work on legislation that would mandate reporting to Congress for any president or official who does take foreign payments and then find a way for Congress to approve or deny those payments to really have a check in place to enforce the emoluments clause. Because, Anderson, obviously, when President Trump was in office, there were no there was no action taken by Congress to actually enforce that clause. They're hoping that they could in the future. All right. Overseas now, appreciate it. The latest in the wake of the deadliest single attack in Iran since the 1979 revolution. Last night, U.S. officials says it bore, said that it bore the marks of uh, the hallmarks of ISIS. Now, ISIS has claimed responsibility, saying it was done by two suicide bombers. The explosions at a memorial service marking the fourth anniversary of the U.S. strike killing Qasem uh, Soleimani claimed at least 84 lives and wounded nearly 300 more. CNN's Nick Robertson joins us now from Tel Aviv. So, Nick, before ISIS claimed responsibility for yesterday's bombings, Iran had blamed Israel, promised a harsh response. Is it clear if the claim by ISIS is going to impact those rising tensions? Um, it should do in part because it is seems to be clear ISIS's claim fairly matches the events. There are discrepancies on the numbers with what the Iranians say, the numbers who were killed. The Iranians say one of the bombs at least was remote controlled. ISIS says that they were uh, both suicide bombers, both the explosions. But it has, it has uh, ISIS's MO, the killing of large numbers of civilians, um, the targeting of Iran and indeed going after uh, Qasem Soleimani's memorial because they believe Soleimani was was a figure who was trying to shut down the Islamic State for for Iran. So a number of reasons to believe that. But uh, the Iranian leadership has still said, well, okay, maybe it was ISIS. We believe it was ISIS, but Israel was behind it, which of course is a nonsense. But it should lead to at least some easing of tensions. And I spoke today with the former head of military intelligence at the IDF, uh, who's very familiar with the battlefield himself, very familiar with dealing with complex issues in the region. And I asked him about these rising tensions. Uh, he said that they weren't crossing a threshold at the moment that he didn't think that there would be a massive response from Iran, but well, these were his words. Israel took the gloves off. You can see it in Gaza. You can see it with Hariri in Beirut. You can see it with uh, the general in Damascus, even though nobody took responsibility, but uh, the Iranians blamed Israel. I think the Iranians will be very, very uh, careful, even if after a, a provocation, uh, they will suffer a loss, but starting a, a war with the US or even with Israel, they are not there yet. And I think that's an important part of Israel's assessment for those targeted strikes that Israel is responsible for. He spoke about Israel taking their gloves off. Um, this is a calculated move, and they believe they're within that threshold of a safety margin. Anderson. What are Israeli authorities saying tonight about the potential for any kind of spread of the conflict, especially along the northern border with Lebanon? 
Yeah, there is a there's a real concern that there is a potential for it to spread along there, and of course that that ISIS strike in Tehran is, is still going to have an impact on Tehran's calculus in a way, and it has. All these events have risen tensions, and there is always that risk that a combination of events leads to a misreading of, uh, of, of, of actions by one side or another. And Israel is still concerned about that. The uh, defense minister today and the prime minister both spoke with uh, President Biden's envoy, who was here today, and told him that there's a time is running out to get a solution along the northern border, in particular because it's affecting the economy of Israel. 80,000 people displaced from there. The Israelis say they want a diplomatic solution, but time is running out for it. Nick Robertson, thanks very much. In about half an hour, Ron DeSantis, followed by Nikki Haley, are going to take questions from Iowa voters at back-to-back CNN town halls. We're going to have a preview coming up. What's on the line for both presidential candidates 11 days from the Iowa caucuses next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. We're looking at a live shot from Grandview University in Des Moines, Iowa. CNN is moderating back-to-back town halls there tonight. The first with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and moderator Caitlin Collins. That begins in less than half an hour. The second with former U.N. Ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and moderator Aaron Burnett begins an hour after that. Only 11 days until the Iowa caucuses. We expect the candidates are going to discuss a wide variety of topics, including their pitches to undecided voters wary of a third campaign by the, uh, by the former president. Joining us now for the town hall, our, our chief national affairs correspondent, Jeff Zellamy. So Ambassador Haley is taking some flack for comments she made about Iowa and New Hampshire. What's the latest on that as she prepares? Anderson, Governor Nikki Haley stepped into this long-running controversy and competition between Iowa and New Hampshire. Of course, the states that for generations have led the presidential voting. And yes, there's competition between the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. Usually these candidates uh, sort of keep uh, stay in their lanes when they're in the various states campaigning. But take a listen to what Governor Haley said last night campaigning in New Hampshire. I trust every single one of you. You know how to do this. You know Iowa starts it. You know that you correct it. You know that you continue to go. So the applause and laughter you heard in the audience in New Hampshire probably not will be the same here tonight where we expect Haley to likely clean up that answer. Of course, uh, Iowa and New Hampshire don't always echo their responses. Often they um, choose different results. Uh, uh, Sometimes Iowa winners are rejected in New Hampshire, vice versa. But clearly this has become a point where her rivals have seized upon it. Um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, used this as an example to call her a phony. Even the Iowa governor, Kim Reynolds, who has endorsed DeSantis, Uh, She uh, lashed out at Haley, said she doesn't understand Iowans. So, look, uh, the reason this matters, Anderson, is she's trying to win over support and voters here in Iowa. And taking a bit of a dig at them last night, probably not the smartest idea. So we'll see if she cleans it up here tonight when she takes the stage in about a half an hour. What about Ron DeSantis? Uh, I mean, is he running out of time to make his case to voters? Anderson, there's no doubt that there's no candidate who started at such a high level in this race with the exception of Donald Trump. And he's closing really uh, with all of his hopes on Iowa. 
The Iowa caucuses often end uh, some presidential hopes. He hopes he is not in that list. He hopes that Iowa is the beginning of his of his effort. But he's closing uh, this campaign with far less money than he started with. And he's closing it really with a considerable uh, pressure to make a strong showing here in Iowa. Of course, he would like to win, but a strong second place showing for DeSantis would show that he is still in this race. So he is uh, really campaigning aggressively, taking every question from voters, uh, from media. He'll be doing the town hall uh, here as well. So clearly all is on the line here for DeSantis in Iowa. You mentioned Donald Trump. How is the former president looming over these town halls tonight? In so many ways, Anderson. I mean, uh, you cannot go to an event without a voter asking one of these candidates, uh, why don't you say more about Donald Trump? Why don't you say this about Donald Trump? So he is looming very large in this Republican race. He'll be back in the state tomorrow campaigning and talking to Trump advisors. One of the things that they say, they're more worried about complacency among his supporters than they are actually about individual rivals. So this race really is starting to intensify in the new year, 11 days before the Iowa caucuses. Yes, Donald Trump is the front runner, there's no doubt, but there's also not been a single vote cast yet. So this is a new beginning for many undecided voters. And those questions start tonight in just about 20 minutes. Thanks very much. Joining me now are CNN political commentators, Elizabeth Farrah Griffin, David Axrod, Scott Jennings, and Van Jones. Um, Alyssa, I mean, so much at stake tonight. How big a problem can Nikki Haley's comments actually be? Well, listen, she's actually not wrong. As the saying goes, Iowa picks corn and New Hampshire picks presidents. It hasn't been since 2000 that the Republican nom- candidate who won Iowa went on to win the presidency with George W. Bush. So in that regard, uh, she's correct. You definitely don't want to insult your voters right ahead of it. But she knows she's always been playing for number two in Iowa. She's playing for number one in New Hampshire. And tonight, I would argue the, the 11 days ahead is make or break for Ron DeSantis. There's not a path for him if he doesn't overperform expectations in Iowa. He's overperform expectations. I would argue it's hard for him to stay in the race, even if he comes in a distant number two to Donald Trump. I think he's got to beat Nikki Haley, have a close margin to Donald Trump. And even so, the money, the resources, and the momentum is not there in New Hampshire. He's consistently third, if not fourth place behind Chris Christie. So unless he beats Donald Trump in Iowa, I expect the DeSantis campaign could be winding down soon. Do you think that's true, too? No, I think that... uh I don't think he's going to beat Donald Trump. I don't think anybody's going to beat Donald Trump. I mean, what's interesting is he's looming large over this, but nobody will address him. He's the he's the person no one will address because he's so far ahead and they don't want to antagonize his voters. But I think DeSantis has to have a strong second uh, to keep going. And uh, but let me just say one thing on the Haley comment Uh, back in 2004. Uh, Howard Dean was buzzing along in the Iowa caucuses and a tape surfaced of him saying that the Iowa caucuses were a waste of time. And that was the beginning of the end of Howard Dean. Iowans do not, as Jeff mentioned, like to see their caucuses denigrated. They, there's this, there is this battle between Iowa and New Hampshire. So what she said was a great line for January 16th, but she just got ahead of herself there. And I think it actually is not helpful. Mm. The strategic interplay among the campaigns and how they're setting expectations and how they're interfacing with each other is kind of fascinating. In Iowa, Trump is not addressing any of these candidates. In fact, I think they're at traffic right now as as, uh, him contrasting his economic record against Joe Biden. But if you go over to New Hampshire, uh, to Alyssa's point, uh, they're now attacking Nikki Haley on the air on the issue of immigration. They think that issue is going to put a lid on the surge that she has been seeing in New Hampshire. And I don't think the Trump people really agree that she has gotten as close 
uh, as we've seen her uh, in some of the public polls. But obviously, they're not taking any chances. And I uh, on DeSantis, you know, 12 is the number for Trump. I, tw- anything north of 12 is a historic victory, right? You get below that, you get down into the single digits. For Trump, that meant you underperformed expectations. And if it's DeSantis in second place, you can maybe try to play the resurrection narrative and keep it going. And I think the point, I'm sorry, Van, I think the point uh, that they're worried about complacency uh, has some reality to it. When you're when you're being told over and over again that this guy has a commanding lead, there is less of a sense of urgency about coming well, out. Well, the DeSantis people believe their supporters are proven caucus goers, right. far more likely to show up, yeah, and that the up. Trump people are depending on a higher turnout of less frequent or new voters. And so the DeSantis people see some hope in that. It takes, it takes more commitment to show up at a caucus and sit there and go through all that stuff as opposed to just show, show, showing up to, to vote. Look, I think for uh, Nikki Haley is uh, you got to peak at the right time, and she's doing that. DeSantis peaked way too early, and he's been sinking ever since. She's peaking at the right time, but she's making these gaffes at the wrong time. (laughs) She just keeps saying dumb stuff just when people are trying to fall in love with her. So, you know, I think that if she could just manage to just, you know, stay where she is and keep rising, um, I've been very, very surprised at how strongly uh, she's coming across for Democrats. I'm hearing a lot of Democrats saying positive things about Nikki Haley in ways they don't say positive things about other Republicans. She could be a real threat to a Biden if she could get past Donald Trump, but she's got to get her foot out of her mouth so she can at least have but a chance to be number two. But you're saying she's gaffes just at the time that she's rising. Yes. The reason, uh, gaffes always come when you start getting a lot of attention. That's mm. part of the test of running for president. There's more pressure the better you do. Mm. She's breaking late and so she's getting the attention late and she's stumbled a bit yes. uh, several times now. So, you but know, we'll see how she bears I, I, up. And I, I hope the Iowans are, are forgiving of her, but if not, uh, she's still got New Hampshire. Look, she made a joke. DeSantis has become a joke. He is out of money. Uh, he's desperate. Uh, he doesn't. You, you can't find any way or any place where a poll that he's doing better today than he was yesterday. Well, and it's I, if, no okay, um, I think that there's a lot of Republicans right now who fear a repeat of 2016, where the field doesn't consolidate when it needs to. There's been a lot of pressure around Chris Kiss, Chris Christie, who's had about 10 percent in New Hampshire to endorse someone or drop out of the race and just allow that sort of alternate to Trump vote to split. I think that momentum's only going to increase following Iowa, um, because at the end of the day, There are a lot of Americans who want something other than Trump. We know six in 10 Americans don't want a Trump versus Biden rematch. But when you have the field split between three candidates, it's really hard for anyone to overtake the giant in the room. You say six in 10 Americans, but you don't say six in 10 Republicans. And there's a reason for that. I mean, he has a 50-point lead in national polls. Rapid consolidation, though, doesn't all help Haley. I mean, if DeSantis were to disappoint and drop out, a -hmm. large number of his people moving forward go to Trump. Trump. And I'll tell you, you know, Trump can pull Ramaswamy's chain anytime he feels like it. And there's a there's some percentages there. Uh, and I suspect he, he will do that at some point. So I agree that Christie is is an anvil around uh, uh, Haley in New Hampshire. But uh, some of this other consolidation will help Trump as well. We're going to take a quick break. More to discuss about tonight's town halls, including how the candidates tackled today's school shooting in Perry, Iowa, where a sixth grader was murdered, five others wounded not far from Des Moines and tonight's event. Tonight's CNN town halls take place less than an hour's drive from that shooting in Perry, Iowa that we told you about at the top of the hour. One sixth grader was murdered, four students, one school administrator were wounded. This is how Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley have previously addressed attempts to curb gun violence. You know, everybody wants to say, oh, but why can't you get rid of, let's get rid of AR-15s. The reality is, even if you did that, it might make you feel good today, 
There's going to be another shooting next week. We need to focus on what really matters. Mental health is the cancer that no one is talking about. My approach to firearms is I'm going to stand rock solid behind our Second Amendment rights, our constitutional freedoms, and I will focus the attention of law enforcement on individuals, convicted felons, people who are mentally ill or dangerous to society. The way to keep our community safe is obviously you got to work with law enforcement, not against law enforcement, and you need to identify those individuals who should not have access. I can't imagine anything changing on their lawns tonight. Not fundamentally. I imagine they'll offer condolences and sympathies because this did rock the Iowa community. And I think that it's a moment to show humanity and just you know, kind of have a solemn presence on this. I do think that, especially as a pivot toward the general, might eventually come for one of these candidates, kind of getting around one of the 80% issues, like supporting red flag laws is a good place to be. I think supporting some level of background checks is a place you could ultimately see them coming out. But I don't expect they're going to have a policy shift tonight. But that, that's the crazy thing. Even after the massacre in our own state at Mother Emanuel, uh, Nikki Haley comes out, says she's against uh, red flag laws, against expanding background checks. I mean, in one of the worst shootings, a shooting that really changed the trajectory of her career, uh, where she did a lot of things right, she wouldn't even go for expanded background checks then. Well, I don't think you're going to get an evolution tonight. I think if they should have held this in a dance hall, because I think you're going to see a lot of dancing mm. uh, around this issue. DeSantis was on with Caitlin uh, some uh, some weeks ago, and she pressed him on this red flaw. Uh, red, red flag law. And he was uh, insistent that there's no evidence that that would be helpful, though they have it in his own state. She asked, well, why don't you repeal it? Well, it was passed by a Republican legislature. They don't have much enthusiasm for that. But for her, you know, the audience, obviously, they're in Iowa and she wants to uh, beat expectations in Iowa. The people of Iowa love the Second Amendment, of course. But she's also talking to these independents in New Hampshire. And you wonder if there's like a little gear in the back of her mind thinking, you know, do I need to do I need to say yeah. something to this group? Because wow. so much of her strategy is banking on uh, getting some of these, you know, independent voters to come into a Republican. I, I agree with that, Scott. But the the uh, you know, the vulnerability that's emerging now is her that little gear in the back of her head and it adjusting ever so slightly according to her political needs. And now she's getting called on it. So she's got to be very careful about this because everybody knows the record that Van cites here and everything she said during this campaign. Well, and I think she's also certainly trying to make inroads with women. That's a core demographic that I think she has an advantage with. And I think that the issue of gun violence and the fear of your kids going to school and the fact that they might be a victim of school shooting resonates so heavily with the suburban moms that we talk about. I wonder if that might be something that she realizes to reach what could be a core constituency. There may need to be some movement beyond just addressing the mental health concerns. Do you expect... Sorry, I was going to say, one of the things that I think Nikki Haley has done a good job on, when you look at something like abortion, she has a deft touch. She, she's able to sort of convey some empathy even while she's taking, you know, frankly, a fairly uh, conservative position often. Uh, tonight would be a good chance for her to do that. Uh, when this comes up, uh, can, she sh can she show that she can be that empathizer in chief, even if she's firm on her policy position? That's the way for her to get a win out of it. Uh, obviously, DeSantis is not good at that kind of thing, so that could be a, a way to show some I think separation. she's doing pretty well among uh, suburban voters around the Des Moines area and so on. This happened 40 miles outside of uh, Des Moines. The question is, can she press beyond that into mm. some of these other areas? And their uh, movement on this issue may not be as well received. Yeah, that, uh, uh, a plugged-in Republican in Iowa told me tonight, Haley, the Haley movement in Iowa is real in the metros, but mm -hmm. can you get out into the rural areas? And of course, that's where DeSantis is baking on this evangelical sort of pastor network mm -hmm. that propelled 
Ted Cruz before. So how she handles uh, some of the issues that they're sensitive to out in the out in the rural parts. Uh, they've sp- they've spent hailing DeSantis. I think they spent about ten million dollars in attack ads against <laughs> on, each, on each, other. each other. I think it's like one point five million attacking the former president. Yeah, that that's it. Um, yeah. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> well, it makes sense in that. One of them is trying to pass the other to get to the next round uh, to challenge Trump. But again, I think this is a reflection of Trump's power within the party right now because there is a cost they feel to going frontally after him. So they'll go after each other's jugulars and they go after his capillary, right? They're not, <laughs> they're not going to go full frontal on Trump because they want to, uh, they want to create a path for at least people who are open to them and him to come their way. And there's, you know, he has made himself a sympathetic figure to Republican voters. So, you know, look at Chris Christie. I mean, he's attacking Trump frontally and he's the least popular candidate in the Republican field. I think, you know, you'd say that, you know, Trump has made himself sympathetic. I wonder if you had a world where he wasn't being indicted, you know, over and over and over again. Mm. And he might, in in that world, felt he had to walk out on some of these stages and actually debate somebody. And maybe you're in a different in a different world. I do think that if you look back, his uh, Trump was and DeSantis are very close in the poll. And then every indictment, you see him pulling away, pulling away, pulling away. Well, and it happened at the same time DeSantis chose to wait. I mean, we sat out here on election night, and DeSantis was riding high. And in that immediate aftermath, it looked like people were ready to dump Trump and go in a different direction. And then they chose to wait, and he waits several months. And in that intervening period, everything Trump that happened— Trump also pounded Don- him with tens of millions of he dollars did. of negative well, He's been attacked more than Donald Trump and Joe Biden combined. DeSantis, on, DeSantis has. Well, and keep in mind, too, we, many of us were here for the night that Trump relaunched his campaign. And it was—I mean, it was quiet. You couldn't find a prominent Republican and say—I think Matt Gates was probably the biggest name <laughs> represented there— Fast forward, you know, just over a year, he has the endorsement of all the House Republican leadership. He's picking up senatorial endorsements. He's picking up endorsements from governors. He's got Donald, vanilla ice. He's got vanilla ice <laughs> like Mar-a-Lago. He has really taken advantage of these indictments, turned it on its head, used the martyr complex, and it's somehow breaking through. But I don't give Trump tremendous credit. It's not that he's some remarkable salesman in this regard. His, those running against him didn't de- decided to defend, yeah. to decide with him on the indictments, to actually say it was a witch hunt. They didn't litigate the case of why those were legitimate and the courts needed to play out. I think it's interesting that he's chosen to spend the day before the Iowa caucuses in the hearing in Washington over whether he has immunity or not. And I, I really do feel he's going to spend a lot of this campaign campaigning from courthouse steps yes. because of what Van said. You can't discount the, the fact, though, that so much of this was a strategic argument. He can't win. Maybe it's because of the legal issues. Maybe it's because of something else. Well, what's happened? All these national polls have come out showing Trump winning, winning in swing states, beating Joe Biden nationally. And so if your argument, and they're still making it today, only, you know, Trump's going to lose. Trump's going to lose. Well, the Republican voters don't believe that. They right. they think vindication's at hand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to thank everybody. The back-to-back scene on town halls with Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley start now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode. 